there are oh. games with life path systems where the whole process is rolling on tables. Yeah, that I mean, takes all creative power away from the player. I no, I don't think that's true. Um, I think the thing about a a, um, a life path system like that is that you're supposed to do it and then kind of extract, you know, character and fiction from it. You are now caught up. Welcome back to part two of our talk about character creation. So we were talking about life paths in RPGs, and um, it's my contention that life paths, unless you're doing a very specific setting, not, not setting is not the right word, but if you have a specific campaign style in mind i think you can do a life path otherwise i think it's very very hard to design a sufficient number of life paths to broadly encompass the kinds of characters that you would build in the exact same system but without the life paths like if the skills and the attributes and all the other bits and bobs that make up a character were sort of uh, a la carte um at least that's my contention. I, my example for this um, is mainly Burning Wheel, I would say, uh, as, as a life path system that I, I, I did not enjoy going through when I was playing it. Um, my main, I would agree with that. You would agree with that? Yeah, because yeah. the entire point of a life path system is that it's a system, it's a guided process that, mm. by definition has a narrower range of possibilities than taking all the character components a la carte. Right. Um, well, but my, my contention is, is like, what, so for, okay, so let me, let me talk about the why Burning Wheel didn't work for me. Um, the main reason was that I couldn't see any reason within the life path system to not simply pick the best option at each stage and the best options seemed rather obvious at each stage. And maybe that's a flaw with well, me as a player, um, trying yeah, to, to find best to find best. Uh, yeah. but I don't, I have built incompetent characters in games before by accident and it's not fun. So I don't do that anymore. Uh, so I will try and figure out what the game wants me to do because games have wants right when you're designing a game you, you you are incentivizing certain choices and disincentivizing others simply by the process of design That's and which informs what best well. is which informs what best is right and so within burning wheel what i saw was a system and this was all i i would say it's probably intentionally he, he, uh what's the author's name luke crane That's right. Um, almost certainly did it, did it on purpose because it's, it's, it's representing a fantasy world, a medieval, you know, Western fantasy world. And so it's better to just have money. I mean, that's basically true in the real world as well. It doesn't have to be fantasy, but like you can start out wealthy and then you have more skills. You have access to more interesting life paths. You have all these things. Um, which is fine. It it serves 
to possibly no actually i don't think it does serve anything i think it's actually just a really bad way to do it um so, there's, there's, why would you ever not be rich well that's part of it yeah but it's it's more like there was nothing if i were to go down the other life paths where i wasn't wealthy there was no commensurate interesting thing um down those other life paths and i know burning wheel is not about the stats and this and the skills and so forth it's about the beliefs and the instincts but in character creation i you can't see any of that so it's, it's guiding me towards these choices that I, I didn't really want to make. And that's, that's what really bothered me about it. Yeah. Because I, I had a very uh, different experience with my, uh, when I played with a life path system. So this mm -hmm. is the one I'm thinking of as Traveler. Uh, mm, yeah. Um, for me, it, it didn't matter to me what the mechanical benefits of the life path system was. It was to give me that springboard that I needed to be able to role play. Sure. Um, and it, helped me create the character so that I I gave a bit of control of what my character was going to be to the game and to dice rolls. Mm -hmm. um, like I, I got sent to jail. Um, and it's not something that I expected to happen to my character, but mm -hmm. that was how the, the life path system guided me. Uh, right. And I, I had an opportunity to escape from jail and I needed to roll a 12 on 2d6 to, to be able to escape. And I was like, fuck it, my character would totally do it. And I got it and I got the 12, so I escaped. Um, and that started to become what my character was. He would take the stupidly risky opportunities um, because that was his background from the life path. And that helped me color like his how I was going to play that character and what what had led what life experiences had led to who he is going to be as opposed to what his mm -hmm. uh social status was or what mechanical benefits he gained from going through that right life i actually I, I actually don't have a problem with those kinds those like where it's where you get or i mean because traveler is random right unless i'm misremembering semi-random yeah semi-random um well the semi-random ones are if, because burning wheel is all choices it's all pick some things it, there's no randomness in it whatsoever as far as i remember um within a randomized path it, there's some sort of you know justice of the random number that um feels acceptable like 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 you know there's something about like oh i wasn't planning on making this character but now that this these roles have handed me this it's actually kind of cool like I've had that experience too. Like uh, Battle Lords is a system that has a very traveler-esque life path opening. Um, it's another game where you can die in character creation. I mean, and that's almost character creation as game at that point because you were just just describing a scenario in which you were like, "Hey, I have to make a roll during character creation to right. do stuff." Mm -hmm. um, most yeah. games don't ask you to do that, but like Battle Lords is is one of those games where you could be like, you could. You can you can die in character creation. Be like, oh, you started you start over now, and it it just becomes a story of like that guy that almost made it out of basic training one time, and then got got gibbed because he pulled a group, you know, he dropped a grenade or whatever. Um, but those aren't the kind of things that I'm I'm criticizing. There, or at least that's not the aim of, um, of 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 the critique. It's it's more like if you're going to have um, a set of choices for a player you need to make those choices at least 
have oh, some oh, semblance of parody so that yeah or i, I like mean it might be viable like at I'm, least I'm not saying not put in like false choices like blatantly false choices yeah well i mean that 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 goes back to the the whole uh D D third edition shamazel where they did the they purposely did ivory tower game design um uh oh, and if you don't know what that means that's the concept um that uh, there are good and bad choices to make in a game, and making, being able to pick out the good choices makes you a good player. That's that's the that's the concept behind that, and that was a concept that was derived from um, Magic: The Gathering, and that was like we we we're going to put bad cards in the game, and by including those bad cards in your deck, you're going to be worse at the game. Why this made the leap into a non-competitive game, I couldn't tell you, but it did and that's why feats like toughness and skill focus were included in third edition because they are obviously worse than many other choices but that that was on purpose um but something like burning wheel the it's it's almost it's almost deceptive because you my or my my thoughts when i was playing was like surely there has to be some reason not to just be a wealthy knight but i couldn't detect one within the character creation system like i I know and like i said before i know that's not the point of burning wheel but i i I couldn't find any reason to to take a i guess that also speaks to what motivates you as a player though like what are the things that draws you to wanting the role or the the influence that you would gain from choosing your life path because i could say that I want to be the rat catcher, and that's what is compelling to me to play this game. And I can take yeah, the life no. paths that lead to that. So, and yeah. I no, and I, I would be fine with that, except that there was nothing that made you better at being a rat catcher down the other life paths. That was the it, thing. It, like, I I, I would want to realize a poor character. That's totally fine. Like mm. a gutter rat type character, right? Totally up my alley. But like, there was nothing that made me better at being that down those paths. It was like I had to be. A, a destitute person and how good are you at being destitute well you can beg for money a little bit it's like i don't it's, get any pickpockets anything like that nothing like fantasy trope down this line i only get fancy tropes going down this line like no man give me something give me something else down here it seems like burning wheels life path really exemplifies because i haven't read it mm-hmm. but from what you're saying it seems like it really exemplifies the or plays into the player habit of choosing towards advantage rather than interestingness. Um, I think it. I think it kind of, and I could be wrong in this, but it kind of sets a trap for the players that are yeah exactly. choosing towards advantage because that's not you advance your character in, but not by doing stuff you're good at, but by changing beliefs and acting on your instincts and stuff like that and so it's not it's yeah, a it's a different kind the, yeah yeah during the character creation it's the advantage is always in wealth not anywhere else and there's no there's no uh, comparable advantage in the other paths as far as i could tell but you know i i didn't we didn't do a thorough like breakdown of the game we 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 broke it out one night we started making characters and we were all like this is this is really weird like are you guys <laughs> noticing this too and they were all like yeah i, I you, you know 
and we didn't we didn't make it to the game. We all made characters, and we were like, oh, none of us liked our characters at the end. Um, oh. And so we're, like, we're not we're not going to fucking other, play this. That's the other <laughs> danger with life paths is that you can, as a player, you can end up with a character that you don't like. Yeah, or I mean, but that's want. that's possible in you know any, any like you, you don't have to have a life path system in your game to end up with shitty characters. <laughs> You don't want to play. You can do you can do that in D and D just by rolling a fighter with nine strength. If that happens. Yeah, There's my a lot of different things that can cause that though. Like you had mentioned a few different ones, like not having uh, powerful options and the ones that you want, or having misleading options, or not recognizing uh, system mastery things, mm-hmm. like uh, the whole ivory tower, the way you described right. it. Like you. Can can have some games where there's a significantly high skill floor to be able to actually enjoy the game at all. Yeah, there's you know some games have a bigger learning curve than others. That's for sure. Like uh, Shadowrun is 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 a great example of that. Where like if you are playing with an experienced GM and you're newbies in Shadowrun, and all of you forget to buy gas masks, you're in for a bad night because <laughs> gas masks are super cheap. But they are, they they make you invulnerable to gas, and I, virtually every Shadowrun game I played in, like gas grenades are a thing. Like they get lobbed at us, and we're like, oh shit, gas masks. But you only do that once, right? So you only don't buy the gas mask the one time, um, and then in every subsequent game you do. But it's like meta knowledge at that point, almost. Um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like at that point the. I, I feel like at that point the GM should say, "Hey, you guys might might want to buy some gas masks. Mm-hmm. Those would be or just really have useful. equipment packages. Yeah, or just have equipment packages or something. Yeah. Um, Here's your standard runner package. If you're at this wealth level, you get this stuff. If you're at this wealth level, you bought this stuff because you're not an idiot. And you know you've you've been on the forums and you know about how shadow runners get croaked on missions and you know you're you're, you're at least baseline prepared. Um, but you know, Shadowrun doesn't hold your hand that much, you know, and it's probably on purpose, you know, it's because it wants you to sort of have that experience of, of looking down an equipment list and being like, Hmm, what should I get here? Cause this is a big equipment list. So what should I, what's, what are my wise purchases? Um, Yeah. But at the same time, like there should be some guidance. mm -hmm. Like that's the kind of thing that, it raises the skill floor way too high, I think. Well, like there's yeah. there is a level that the skill floor should be low enough that new players should not basically be penalized simply because they don't know any better. Yeah, I mean, I I, would, I agree with that. I think like I think my I'm... sorry. No, you're fine. Go ahead. Cat, please say something. Oh. I was just going to let, uh, you know, editing Fred enjoy that uh, empty period there. Oh, great. Anyway, now um, i got to enjoy this, too. <laughs> anyway, Sorry. What I was going to say is that, um, well, basically, the skill floor should be low enough that it doesn't penalize players, but you should also have a decent skill ceiling so that advanced players can get more out of it at the same time and feel rewarded but you don't want to give them such 
obvious rewards that if basically the low-skilled player is just the newbie to the game the first time they play is with some friends that have played before, that they're completely useless because that that's not mm-hmm. really a fun game for anybody at that point. All you really well, have is like one person who's having a miserable time and then their friends don't tend to feel all that great either. Yeah, and I think my issue with that and like the thing Rob said is that that's often trading on information you don't have. Like mm-hmm. you should if if you know gas is a thing that is used regularly and you're likely to need gas masks, there should be something indicating that to you. Um yeah, but, the fact that gas masks are an enumerated purchasable item. I I don't know if that's enough. I mean, I've seen Shadowrun item lists. There's a lot mm-hmm. of shit on there. There, there there's Shadowrun item books. Yeah. Plural. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just I mean, I'm just talking about the item list like in the main book mm-hmm. is really fucking long. And yeah. then you get into the splats and stuff. I mean I don't know if, you know, if gas mask is a necessary thing, I feel like there should be something indicating that rather than it just being, you know, oh, it's in an item list where some things that are not as necessary as the gas mask are also included in those item lists. Yeah. But I think that's, that's a reasonable thing to, to, to ask of a game. It's like, tell me what, the, what I should be, what's the baseline level of knowledge I should have? You know, yeah. as a as a starting character, like what 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 threats should I know about? What what do I know about the world? You know, like that those sorts of things um, are often not detailed. Uh, they're sort of implied by inclusion. Um, you know, what what the designer chose to include and what what they chose to leave on the cutting room floor uh, are are sort of meant to inform those choices or inform that level of knowledge. Uh, a player's supposed to have. Um, you know, I think D&D does it in some ways by segregating the monsters out of the main player guide, you know, it, making making it uh, implying, maybe not making it clear, but maybe implying that the PCs shouldn't know about the monsters ahead of time. You know, they should have no foreknowledge of these things. Um, There's no implication there. That's That was deliberately done way back in the day. I'm I'm talking about now though. I know I know back in the day that was 100% deliberate and like players should not read this book and I mean I think it was actually in the front of the monster manual like if you're a player close this book up. Um the fact that all the books are separate is a remnant of that. It's a remnant of that but it's also a factor of page count. Um you know having having a single 900 page book is just much more unwieldy. Untenable. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 but I, you know, but then you get into the argument: Do they actually need all those pages? And I would argue, probably, probably, probably not. Yeah, no. Um, but but getting... at the same time, like players, you should, like even D and D, just for the basic level of knowledge. Honestly, they should have like most of the basic common monsters in there. Like, pretty much everybody should more or less know what a goblin is at this point. Yeah, like that's, this is just a standard thing that your character will run into. And, yeah, as well yeah. as livestock and beasts of burden and common just animals. 
like yeah anything like a random normal person in that world would know about are you a trained guard then you know what to defend yourself against because your town has run into these before or somebody has and it you may not have specific explicit knowledge of it but you should have a pretty good idea that if giant wolves like direwolves and such are a fairly common thing in this world some point a hunter is going to tell the town about this yeah like they're gonna be like okay this might actually attack us you guys should know about it because if you don't we're all gonna die there's something related what i've said before which is that the characters have lived their entire lives in this world they are going to know stuff about it yeah. Mm-hmm. There's something I that we can cheat on that by making it so that the players haven't in my world. That's how I get over with a lot of stuff. There's something we can yeah, tie back can, to. But... <laughs> yeah, I explicitly I'm, 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 made that. I'm, I'm enjoying so... Fred just getting stomped on on every. Sorry, time. Fred. It's okay. It it honestly happens all the time, and I'm I'm not blaming y'all. Um, but yeah, what I was. Who, me? No. You. Not into that. That's not my kink. <laughs> um, but I was going to say, there's something we can relate back to character creation, actually, which is establishing uh, character knowledge. And like most yeah. books I've read don't really have like, oh, here's all the basic things your character should know. Hmm. It's generally, I don't know. And often they don't even touch on it. Like, it seems to be generally assumed that the GM will give you what you need to know or provide that information uh, when you need it. Uh, (laughs) The problem is, they don't even tell the GM to do that, so the GM doesn't have the basic knowledge to tell you the basic knowledge your character has. Yeah. Yeah, there's an an implicit assumption that the GM is just going to read all the books thoroughly before they start running the game. Um, Mm -hmm. And (laughs) some GMs do that, and and some don't. (laughs) Yeah, Sorry, I'm just proving I still exist. Good, and it's also kind of a <laughs> de facto um, tradition that the GM is the ultimate arbiter of who knows what. Yeah, yeah, that, that too. Well, actually, I was gonna bring up. I've been reading uh, Over the Edge, which I don't know if any of you guys have read, but it's. Mm. Uh, so, the name's familiar. I haven't read it though. Okay, know. it's uh, it's a like a surreal role playing game by Jonathan Tweet and Robin D. Laws. Um, came out in ninety something, ninety five, I think, ninety six. Um, and it's 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 interesting because the first, it's like a I don't know, like a two hundred page book, and the first maybe fifty pages is. Like, here's how to play, here's how to make a character, etc. And then the rest of the book is setting information. Um, one chapter is like, you can give this to your players if they've been in the setting of this for a while, which it's possible they haven't because it's just an island um, rather than like an entire world. And then there's stuff that is explicitly just only the GM can read this. Mm. Um, and so that one does actually give out a bit of player knowledge uh kind of explicitly at the start of the game but Mm -hmm. that's the only one i've come on to and it does it for very specific reasons um that actually has that here's what 
players should know or shouldn't know at the start of a game. Right. Yeah. I mean, I did, I did that in ashes when I just the basic like setting material. I just point that out as like, this is the stuff, the common things that your characters would know as common knowledge. I, I mean, I outline that up front and I think, but I can, I'm, I can do that because my setting is specific. Like D and D can't do that because D and D is meant to do forgotten realms and Greyhawk and, um, and Dark Sun Eberron, and Eberron, Eberron, and, Eberron yeah, etc. Yeah, Ravenloft. Whatever and, stupid thing your GM comes up with, or whatever stupid thing. Me... Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. I, I, generic. Yeah, I did my own setting up several times in in D anD D, but like it was, you know. So you can't have that. They don't. They don't have that freedom to to do that. Like a Shadowrun does. Shadowrun should absolutely do that. Like here's what you know as a player in Shadowrun. It it kind of does that, but like it's by implication, not not uh direct intent yeah i'll like often when that comes up in a game i'm pretty forthcoming with setting information usually i know some gms aren't mm -hmm. but often i'll just go like you know if if they encounter something and they're like i don't know what this is i'll go okay you would know you know x y and z about it um, i probably don't tell them everything but i you know i tend to tell them basic information plus plus probably a bit more um Unless yeah, I'm playing I find, like Call of Cthulhu or something. Right, yeah. I find that um, I usually try to give the players like three, two to three bits about something. And I usually go with um, uh, what, like sort of the base, like what it is, what it, what it can do kind of things. Like if, if they would know that, like let's take a, let's take a cockatrice, for example. They encounter cockatrice for the first time. Paladins and fighters and barbarians is, would know wizards would know rangers there's all excuses for everybody in the party to know what this thing is um and they go okay so this is a cockatrice it's a thing and it can uh paralyze you with its gaze and then what i'll try and do if i'm being cognizant i will try and include why it's valuable and why it's particularly dangerous so and both of those things will what the first one is meant to incentivize the player so it's valuable because um let's say uh, cockatrice blood is used for uh all a number potion of potions stone skin spells or something like that right um and so now i don't have to do the ridiculous D, &D thing of rolling up treasure at the end the treasure is built into the monster um and then the the like where was it carrying all those silver pieces um and then the second thing will be why it's dangerous and it won't be tied to um it won't be tied to the creature it'll be like it once uh you know paralyzed the the head of your your order or or the uncle of the head of your order or something like that so i wanted to I, and the, the danger is like i want to tie it into the players somehow you know uh, something you know about cockroaches you have a reason to to fear these things something like that just give them give the because you know you're looking for hooks as a gm but the players are also looking for hooks they're looking for hooks to get into the world more and the if you can give them like a couple of things like the, the players will run with shit and players will run with dumb shit so don't worry about yep. <laughs> don't worry about giving them you know brilliant material um, there's two things I'd like to cover there. First off, I'd like to 
basically springboard off what you said previously um your first point of how the monsters have something valuable about them like that's kind of a handy thing to have in general and i'd kind of like to see it in more games is give a reason why these things exist or why it matters to the players other than just purely as fight. an obstacle yeah. Yeah. it's like well it's something to fight and it's like it's random what you get off it it's like no if you're gonna fight like a fire breathing dragon do you get something fire based off it so that's yeah not, not only do you, should you and i agree with rob on both points hook <clears throat> monster knowledge to the players you also have to hook monster lore into the economy that's the main incentive there hmm yeah, that's a more succinct way so, of putting what I said. Uh, give an example of what you mean there. Like, how do you do um, that? Well, uh, taking directly from Rob's example, if cockatrice blood is used in potions, that's how it hooks into the economy. Okay. If All dragon right. scale armor is known to be a really good thing, then that's how dragons, or one of the ways dragons are hooked into the economy of the game world. Okay, that sounds pretty and reasonable. Players yeah. will, players should know how how the economy in the game world works. Actually, like, what are the resources yeah. and commodities there? I'd read an interesting article that was about the economics of dragon slaying and how there's like fire breathing dragon goes around torching towns and such, and then they build like an economy about okay we have like adventurers which show up you know knights and such to slay the dragon and then it goes on about like how they're buying particular things how that money works back into the economy and it actually ended up pretty complex and it wound up being that actually slaying the dragon turns out to be kind of a bad thing so if you actually killed the dragon, get that much treasure, it saturates your economy and basically screws everything up. Like, the sales of everything go completely wonky. There's no reason for the adventurers to keep putting money into this town any longer. It actually dries up. So after a while, like, people realize, maybe we should just, you know, revive the dragon. Mm-hmm. And actually... that's, that's, that's where you... That's where you should consider abandoning the proposition that dragons have mountains of treasure hoarded and treat the dragon itself as the treasure because they're, they're made of commodities that have value. Yeah. For another example of a monster, a D&D example was, I, was the idea of like an entire city dedicated to the constant harvesting of resources of the, terrasque. the captured Tarrasque. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a, it's somebody somebody kickstarted that setting. Uh, I can't yeah, remember the name of it they, right now. I don't uh, remember off the top of my head either, but it's basically yeah. this entire yeah. city. It's like there's basically unlimited meat. Uh, they've got like bones and they've got like magical items and so much stuff just from 
the sheer mass of how much it regenerates every day. So they have like an entire industry about basically strip mining this to RAS constantly as it's trying to revive itself. Yeah, it's like Prometheus with a regenerating liver. Every day it gets yeah. torn out. <laughs> <laughs> kind of feel bad for the poor Trask, but <laughs> I know at that point. But it, what's kind of cool about that setting is I was reading about it, and it does actually like bring that up. Like there's a faction in the city that wants to let it go, and they're like, "This is cruel. What you're doing to this thing? Like this isn't right. It doesn't matter how nasty a monster it is. Like nothing deserves this." So but that's cool. The, you know? the trend I'm seeing here is that better world building is the foundation for better character creation. No. Uh, well, if, you have, like, a, if you have the world established, hmm. there's something to build off of. However, Maybe some more dramatically still, invested characters. You can still have the players be invested even if the world isn't all that fleshed out. As long as you have... It depends on like what you mean by world building like is the setting established or is it just the that vibrant detail is what i meant hmm. i don't yeah i don't agree with that um i mean cool. i why not totally um i i can definitely see that as a place where you can pull good characters if you have a an interesting setting but I don't think that that is a a rule. I think that there's a lot of different ways to extract interesting characters. Um, for example, I'll I'll fall back on Powered by the Apocalypse just because it's what's floating in my head right now. Because those don't start with really any established setting mm -hmm. beyond a bit of the um, cultural stuff that often comes with them because of how they're built. But they don't have a lot of they don't have like an explicit and very detailed setting along with them character well, creation what I said doesn't game. require a vibrantly built setting up front okay um can you explain how it doesn't because be I'm, I'm a little confused here um even if vibrant detail is discovered in the world that's that's a hook point for all the characters at that point, that that hook exists. Mm. So you're saying, so yeah, you're saying, the world building doesn't have to happen all up front, as long as yes. the, the 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 interesting detail is is discovered at some becomes, point by the players, becomes known. Yes. Let's say. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. All right. Uh, hmm, that's an so interesting thought. We were talking me... about character creation, though. Like, at the very start, if information does not exist yet, it does not apply during character creation. Now, it might extend your characters after the fact, but that's no longer character creation. You already have the character and you're playing them. So I, I don't know if that really counts. Mm. There's, yeah, there's an interesting system that I, I played, just to throw this in. Uh, sorry, Carr, you can uh, have your point in a second. Uh, <laughs> there, the system had, uh, it was um, circles of power, uh, and it's, it's still in a, a demo state. But the idea was that um, there are different sects that exist in the society, um, and 
there is a social order or a social hierarchy that uh, before you start playing the game session, you determine. So you'll say which class is going to be the reigning class and which ones go below and cascade down to the lowest like cast of people. Mm. Um, and then once you establish that, you create your character um, and then you create or you choose from a set of laws that have been enacted that could benefit or hinder certain sects that exist. So it's coupling some of the world building aspects with your character creation in that sense. So I think you can do it like where the, the setting is like still emergent and you're developing your character concurrently hmm. um, to have that, that influence. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was the, kind of the point I was going to make, which was that Parbelly Apocalypse and the so-called narrative game movement makes world building and character creation or the setting and the characters are somewhat distinctly interoperable. Hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, so a an apocalypse character isn't created when you're done with character creation in the same way that a character hmm. is created in D and D or GURPS or Shadowrun. Right. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh because hmm. the, the the process is ongoing in the in the power by because you're, there's still details about the character left to discover like out in the world like I mean, you know you discover a thing and then you 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 make up a little bit of backstory about your character about the first time they encountered that thing maybe or or a significant time they encountered that thing is that different from any other game because that sounds like what I do um yeah but, it is because I mean, sometimes games ask you to set out that information ahead of time all right. I mean, well, D &D. I don't know. Like, that's a, yeah, that's. Uh, I I think there's always a part of the character that is discovered in play. Like, mm -hmm. I don't think you've ever fully created a character at the end of character creation. Not okay. Well, in traditional games, finished it. In traditional games, the 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 part of the character you're discovering is the now of the character, but in apocalypse games, you're discovering the past of the character as well. It makes you do that. Mm -hmm. but, well, uh, it's doesn't that's not a system thing entirely. Like you sometimes discover things about a character in D and D or anything really. If, like I don't see how that's like one hundred percent the system. It, it's not one hundred percent the system. It's, it's just sort of where it nudges you. I think. Yes. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. They're, they're less. It's less concrete. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, At least I think so. Consider Blades in the Dark how no. you don't plan out like a lot of the information you basically do flashbacks to explain mm -hmm. what had happened in the past beforehand like you run into a problem the problem itself is not so much interesting as it is how you solve the problem and right. you say okay we we knew that this was going to happen we planned for it so we came prepared and you're basically going back mm -hmm. into the past. Okay. And this is actually part of how the game is structured. Most games until that point didn't really do that. Like Shadowrun is basically the complete opposite of that, where Shadowrun, it's like, 
you can spend like three or four sessions planning a run and not actually fighting anything. Like, you can totally do that. Um, so it's kind of that kind of a dichotomy where a lot of the previous games, they were set up in the sense of your character is basically more or less done when you write up their backstory and everything. You more or less know the character. You know most of what they know. Like, yes, there are blanks to fill in, but not, like, huge gaps. Whereas in yeah, I... a lot of the more narrative, more modern games, they tend to be very brief in terms of the actual character backstory, um, the character's design, and so on. And they fill in those holes as you play them. Yeah, they're, they're, the modern games are less concerned with creating a complete and expansive snapshot of the character at the start of the game. Hmm. Well, and the one thing I was going to say about Powered by the Apocalypse um, before we went off on this was that uh, when you create characters, you are also uh, creating setting. I mean, the the creation of the setting is intertwined with the creation of the characters. Uh, in almost in pretty much every Powered by the Apocalypse game I've read, uh, that is done to a certain extent, uh, including Blades in the Dark and all of those. But pivoting a little bit, I know uh, last week we were talking about we at one point had brought up talking about like what defines an RPG character or what is an RPG character, and then we of course tangented, tangented. So let's see if we can, uh, yeah, we're real good at that. Let's see if we can uh, uh, get back on that. Um, I have a, a problem with this question myself because I don't really have a good answer. And maybe that's uh, our problem with this is that uh, an RPG character is a pretty broad thing. My only definition that I have come up with so far is that an RPG character is a collection of ways in which the player can interact with the fiction or uh, are descriptors of that character. Um, and I don't think that's even completely true. I would... Okay, I'm going to come at this more from the novelist side of part since I've done like a lot of writing there, so I would actually define a character as basically a certain set of opinions, personality traits, and preferences, more or less. Like, maybe some physical traits as well. But basically, when it comes down to role-playing a character, you're base you need to have something that you can say, is this in character or is it out of character? Is this something that the character would do? Is it something the character would say? Does this sound like this is something the character would say? And uh, I would, I would sum up an RPG character as the player's agent in the fiction. Okay, um, that yeah. is very broad. Yeah, the problem but, with that is that. Sure. I, I define, like, 
character separately from the player's agency because you can claim mm -hmm. that the character's weapon is their agency in combat. The weapon is not the character. You like, if you get rid of the weapon, you still have a character unless you're playing, like, D&D as it's written, in which case you don't, but... <laughs> yeah, you're reading way too much into what I said. Well, he also said agent, not agency. That's I'm what we sure. do here. But, yeah, um, agent. But, yeah. Agent. Yeah, agent. That's, that's important. Uh, but, Mark, did you have something to say? So I was going to say that I, I agree with Fred, your, your point of view with the character being both the uh, mechanical definition of how the how your player interacts with the game, as well as their um, embodiment within the fiction. And I think with the games that I've been a part of and witnessed, that for different groups, it tends to be, uh, the, each character tends to be somewhere in that spectrum of mechanics and fiction. Um, so I think depending on the game and depending on the group, I think there's quite a, a variety, but each, uh, I guess, each element of the game that you would call a character is usually defined by both of those two aspects. Um, and I think uh, Rob has a really interesting game in that perspective because it it messes a little bit with the idea of a single individual character and allows you to extend your definition in both mechanical and fictional senses to a group of people. Um, I think that that, yeah. that has an interesting take on it as well. So, Yeah, I, I mean, that was one of the impetus. Impeti? Impetuses? Impetus. Can't remember my, uh, my, de my declension. <laughs> anyway, uh, no, but that was, uh, that was an impetus behind, behind doing that because I'd never seen... I, I I mean, there's the the closest thing that I know of to that is Ars Magica, um, and that has uh, troop style play, which is where the where the the name troop comes from uh, in in Ashes. Um, it was party for the longest time, but it's like, well, there's already a name for it, so let's just go with that. Um, but in Ars Magica, you have every character plays a wizard, and then also. Um, what are called grogs, which are like the wizard's sort of henchmen, sort of, but not quite, but they are non-magic-using characters. And so they're like the more skill, socially skilly uh, people, the, the fightery type people, they're, they're more of that. And so, but not everybody plays their wizard every session because wizards do stuff that takes a long time. And so wizards will be, your wizard might not, will be working on a project, um, you know, building some kind of, making a spell, new spell, or um, creating a magic item or something like that. Um, and they'll be out of commission for months and not able to do anything else. And so you take your other character and go do stuff with somebody else's wizard who does need to go out and do other things and advance their, their goals. Um, but it wasn't, you, you couldn't do it at the same time and sort of i thought it would, might be interesting to try and make a game that where you would have sort of this your avatar in the world as the player and then sort of these additional um characters that come around with you and and to the challenge has really been to keep them simple enough so that they um 
are, are functional like it, it doesn't take a lot of mental energy to run them but also not let them bleed not let them feel like a single total unit in the mechanics so that's why i avoided um uh single dice roll and use a dice pool that's the main reason i did that how would you how would you then define a character would you still view a character in that game as the individual personality or would you view it as the troop then it's it's uh there's two definitions of character in in ashes and that is what who you are and then what you can do that's the those are sort of the broad umbrellas and the who you are um as a player is directed more towards your main character which is your war mage that's really the you in the setting okay um and the other characters are ancillary but you do have you do narrate their actions as well and you do speak through them as well if you choose um so they're much more your character than an NPC follower, for example. Um, and you do determine all of the who you are parts of those characters as well. So when you meet an adventurer that is going to join your troop, you get to define um, things like where they're from, uh, what uh, if they have non-human ancestry, um, what professions they have, what their personality is like, all of these things, and it becomes a part of your troop and as and an extension of your your character in the world. Um, and then mechanically, the whole thing's your character. Mechanically, you have total control over every piece. Um, right. And that that definition matches up with what Carr was saying about how mm-hmm. it's your a representation agent. of your yeah. agent, like yeah. or your yeah. Yeah, it does. It doesn't deviate much from that, even though you are playing uh, an entire group of people. Um, it it doesn't agent. deviate much from that definition because it is still how players interact with the fiction of the world. And um, although they have, well, no, that's about right. Yeah, they they still that's still their main thing through which they interact with the world. They have a little more narrative control than in um, some other games. Uh, I mean, players always always have narrative control in, in games, hopefully. Um, but some games spell that out more than others. I spell that out a little more. Uh, you, you, you have the ability to take rest control of the narrative temporarily. Um, and so you have possibly more agency um, through your agent. Um, right. I don't know if it's... Because it's sort of a meta currency and sort of not, you know, it's not like, like for example, uh, I would say in fate, the fate points are even more of an agent in the fiction than the character is. Um, oh, but the fate points are an extension of the character. They're an extension, but they're a meta currency. They're not something that the character knows is being spent, you know. Well, there's um, a difference between the character as the player's agent. Right. And player agency. And player agency. Yeah, no, I was making that distinction. Um okay. so so like 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 I'm saying, like like you just you just said in fate, like the agency of the player is in the fate points mainly. Their agent is still the character. Um in in Ashes, the way it's different is that the the agency is also in the character, 
because it's not really a meta currency. Like the, the, the characters know they're spending this, this stuff to influence dice. Uh, well, they don't know that it's dice. <laughs> I guess that's a distinction, but they, they do know it's their influencing probability. Um, so it is a currency. It's just not as meta as it's not as meta. And I'm, I was just playing with the idea of whether that that's that that's still their agent. Yeah. But it, hmm. There's something else there. I, yeah. I, I, I can't quite put a name on it. There's an extra bit of we can... agent or agency because they can influence the narrative in different ways, even if they're player, even if the characters aren't directly involved. Well, agency so... is the ability of a player to make choices, whether mm -hmm. that's as themselves as a player, yeah, or as the character, their agent. Um, yeah, what did you have to say, Mark? Well, I was just going to say, um, just to like, I, I was going to build on this idea of um, the character representing the agency of the player, and or sorry, acting as the agent of the player, and uh, in both the fiction and mechanics. Um, and I wanted to see what we thought of how important these aspects are to vary from player to player, um, because ideally you'd want something that is unique that you get to represent or bring to the team when you're participating in a, a game. Mm -hmm. um, so how how much does that influence the way you design games um, to, to bring that to the forefront of character creation? And how much do you let that emerge? Um, how much do you want to make sure that your mechanics are, are streamlined enough um, while still having that that variability, like classes are an easy way to say that you you have that variability because one class of characters can operate in a specific mechanical way, and a separate class could act in a different way. Um, mm -hmm. And I think what a lot of um, people's gripes are with D and D is that it doesn't necessarily develop the um, fictional side of things as as much of a focus. Uh, as the mechanical side. So I'm just wondering, I'm posing the question to you, how, like all of you collectively, how you how you decide to frame that. Um, and yeah. I think if I could, uh, Kavoir, I think, has a really interesting idea for his game where mm -hmm. as the player, you actually participate in the creation of two entities. Um, he got away I don't know from... if you Sorry? Uh, there's two very distinct types of players in the current version. Mm. I see. I see. But so, like, because the because of how like the because of the discussion we had, it we decided that basically the thing where you were creating two characters that had like differing goals and worked in different ways, but uh, right. shifted out to is basically uh, there was no reason for multiple of the higher level characters to work at this uh, to work together. Basically, is the problem. So. Mm. I shifted the focus of the game. Interesting. But yes, uh, basically uh, the the idea, but it's still as a bit it's still a bit weird because there's you know, like two distinct types of characters, and I. But uh, I'm trying to decide how I should be discussing this. Um, basically, that's a choice I went in to at the very start at the beginning, before. 
and it was like part of a design goal. It, it wasn't because I thought it was a good idea, or I thought it was because I thought it would be interesting, mm. and wanted to mm. see if I could do it. Cool. Because it fit with what I was trying to do, not because I went, "Oh, this is a good and smart idea that I should do." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, that that's a that's a worthwhile endeavor too. Just uh, just to see if like it can work. Um, partially that, and partially know? like what I yeah. wanted to do. I did, didn't want to do it the other way. Like I could just make the quote unquote spirit god, whatever you want to call them, characters. I could just go. Though, yeah, this is a GM thing, but. It mm -hmm. felt right. it feels really wrong for what I was trying to do. So it, right, right. Yeah, but I think those ex thought experiments are exactly what we're getting at with this too. Is that if you, I don't know, have a if you take the characters as there's a, a single individual that the player represents, and that is how they are in fiction, who they are mechanically, uh, and you leave it at that. Like I think that's that's one uh, very simple way of pursuing what your character could be in a game. And I think what you and Rob have done have really um, expanded on that in interesting ways. So I just wanted to uh, see what your perspective of it was and how, how that experiment uh, Yeah, I, I'm sorry that I like stopped being innovative in that way because <laughs> it, was just, I mean, it was a conscious choice. I, don't, I did it, but like it, it was just basically, but yeah, <laughs> it's like you're bringing this up, up this example that's no longer true, and I feel kind of bad. No, 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 no. <laughs> it was still an interesting idea. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. It was an interesting idea. It just didn't work out for what what I was trying to do. It was easier to do it in a different way, because yeah. So I've got something, mm -hmm. but I can let you finish. Go ahead. Yeah, I was finished. Don't worry. More. All right. Um. I think there's a there's usually a gap in the design of the game between what a character is mechanically as in what's on the character sheet and who the character is fictionally in the gameplay. Yeah. Uh okay, then that's a badly designed game. I'm sorry, well, I know that was not Okay, nice. not necessarily because That's a whole other topic. Anyway, um, like nowhere in D&D &D does it say or even give you the choice of if you were a dwarf, you can play completely stereotypically drunk. That's never on the character sheet. Unless the player scribbles it on the side. Mm -hmm. Because it's not in the rules. But around the, at the table in play, there's a, the dwarf is drunk. Often. So often, yeah. yeah. So that gap is something it something that I've come to call the super sphere of the game, which is basically imagine the game as a planet, and the planet itself, the rocky mass, is the rules, and the mm -hmm. atmosphere is everything else that the rules don't say is there, but the players put there anyway. Okay. Hmm. Like um, drunk and snooty elves and right. you know, yeah. the, the the vaporous fluff that the game never says, but the players put. Right. Oh, and that's, that's right. also often is that kind of like uh, cultural context. 
you know, mm -hmm. like those are all uh, stereotypes, I guess, for fantasy races that kind of everyone goes, oh yeah, those make sense. Dwarves are, yeah. uh, you know, drunk and they like to dig. Um, and then everyone just goes, okay, that's how that works. Sure. Or they make a character that is directly in opposition to that. Right. Usually. Right. Uh, but a but game, it, a game can't consciously make efforts to reduce either the depth or the density of that supersphere by including that what would be in this in the atmosphere into the rock itself. Yeah, and that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, I did, is... I think, have a response to uh, Mark's question. Uh, if you're done, Carr, I don't know if you yeah, are. I think that was my response, but go ahead. Okay, cool. Um, I so in in my game, uh, which a couple I know, I'm pretty sure all of you read and a few of you have played. Uh, in the most in the version before this one, I was focusing a lot on like the character's past, the the like. I don't know what what to call it. Like their class sort of was built around their past life, which was like, okay, who were you before you left to do this thing? You know, it was like, oh, you were an employee or you were, uh, what was the other one? I think at one point I had a bookworm in there, but I think that's not in that version. But anyway, so um, I, I, I looked at it and then I kind of realized that that doesn't work because, or it doesn't work to have that as a central conceit of the character because players need to know immediately what their character can do and what are the assumptions that are made with that character during play and giving them that bit about their past doesn't really help them do that because it describes something that is going on before the game rather than during. Um, and so I now am putting that role piece that was first described to their past life into something that is more current um, and talking mm -hmm. about what they're doing now rather than what they were doing in the past. Mm -hmm. the, the, the unexpected thing you were doing there is trying to shoehorn background or backstory into, into class slash role. That was, I mean, I essentially. Think, I don't think it's easy to make that work. No, it uh, quite obviously wasn't. Um, if it was easy, I probably would have done it. Well, yeah. maybe. Well, I, mean, I don't know. I, don't know. I, think, I think you can, I think it's possible to do something like that. You know, if you make, if you are able to do something like build classes that reflect a type of experience rather than, and then that yeah. type of experience I mean, has, a, has a role sort of uh, baked into it. Um, you know, uh, like I could imagine, for example, like uh, like if you took the Call of Cthulhu setting and um, a debutante is like a class, right? That's like your social class. And then, but that reflects your background as like this person that came from money and you... Um, you know, we're able to move in, in uh, upper class social circles and um, acquired a, a varied skill sets and interests and all, all this kind of stuff. And then that informs how good you are at stuff now. But 
it would be it would be tricky to do. You'd have to either have like a very narrow set of those backgrounds, um, and and they would all have to be equally relevant to the gameplay. Yeah, so they would have to be specific to the, whatever setting you were or whatever type of game you you were you were trying to do. Uh, it'd be very hard to have a, a broad selection of those to satisfy various different backgrounds. Yeah, so and I, so I agree with you, Fred, in, in that in that scenario. Yeah, I. I, I like the idea and I'm still probably going to put it in there as somewhat, but my problem was not necessarily that it's in there, but that, it, that was the central conceit without a lot mm -hmm. of context surrounding it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you're, uh, as uh, Cavoir said, not with his mouth, um, the, what you're doing is frequently tied to your background or the other way around, which is certainly true. Um, but I was, I yeah. think I was going about it in the wrong way. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think I think oh. you need. I think you'd be better off exploring the character's demeanor of that central pillar of the character rather than their past experience. Mm. That's that's more the way I'm going now. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah. Uh, I yeah. So I I, I think. What I what I want to say finally is that a character's role should be more about what they're doing now rather than what they're doing in the past or what they've done in the past, which I know seems like it's something that everyone just assumes, but apparently I didn't. So there's got to be at least <laughs> one more person out there who doesn't know that. Sure. Well, yeah, because level one D&D characters weren't their class before the game began is pretty much the the concept that D and D relies on. They weren't their class for, yeah, sort of. Yeah. In a sense of, uh, you're, you're even more of a blank slate than you might, than you would, than your age would yeah. warrant. Yeah. Hasn't it become true recently that level zero characters have no class or something like that? Uh, no. Oh, maybe there's an option rule for that, but it's actually more like they fleshed in backgrounds and stuff like that in 5th edition. So there's more, there's more of that, which is good, oh, because yeah, that and hooks you into the world more, or at least gives you somewhere to, something to build off of. I've also not, I don't think 5e has, or it didn't have official uh, 0th level character rules. I only saw that as like a uh, as a homebrew online, yeah. Unless they put it out in some book have recently, been, I haven't kept up with all the fighting. It may have even but. been, it may have even been third or fourth that did that. Uh, yeah, sure. It's, it's it's an idea. I mean, Shadow Shadow of the Demon Lord. That's that's the official starting position. Is you are a zero level character. You are just your race. But race gives you a bunch of stuff in that game. Um, okay, yeah. then by inference, we can say that zero level characters, which are only race. Or class. ancestry, they call it because not necessarily race, but yeah, ancestry. Yeah, that's better than calling it race because race race is such a weird term for what it actually the fantasy. is. But yeah, what what yeah, is describing? Yeah, I agree. Thing. It doesn't really yeah, work. It's, yeah, it's way too loaded. Well, but also they're not necessarily races; they're more like species or something. At least is how we yeah, define but... race usually. They're somewhere on the spectrum between species. But, okay. And um, so actually, we were, I remember when we came into this, we were saying we should talk about roles, and it seems Mark has led us onto that path. So 
thank you. Um, but is anything <laughs> does Mark? Do you have anything that you would like to say about um, roles? Because and I know that your game, like you, don't have uh, like a, a starting character creation. And I, if I remember correctly, you don't assign roles. At least last time I read it, you don't. Correct. Yeah, Start. and that yeah. that still exists. Um, I I want to make the character itself as emergent from the game as possible. Um, so I want there to be almost nothing up front, if possible, about where where your character's background is, what they represent in the game, uh, mechanically, fictionally, and have that become an emergent property entirely. Um, that's the that's the experiment that I'm running. Um, I think that there, uh, the the benefits that I'm seeing is that I think the once players are invested in the character, then it becomes a creation entirely of their own. I think they're much more um, accepting of that that character. But the downside is how do you get someone to uh, uh, be excited about a blank sheet? Um, and that's the that's well, the downside that I'm finding with this. It's not a blank sheet. It's just a sheet that doesn't have a label on it. Well, I, I'm pretty sure his game it starts out with it almost does, a blank sheet. I mean, there's like no numbers well, on it either. Even still, like there's there's nothing in big letters that says fighter or wizard or whatever that would mm -hmm. imply class more or less. And I think there's room to explore getting players used to the concept of their character's role emerging through play rather than they get a, lame, a, a name tag with a label on it that says class right. during exactly. character creation, and that's what they're locked into. Right. And that's, that's what I'd like to explore in the game that I'm making. Um, yeah, and and so far I'm happy with it. I think it's it's coming along, but there's there's definitely a preconceived notion that a lot of players coming into the game would have in terms of what their what their um, their draw is. Um, and I think where I need to perhaps focus more is have the fiction be the draw um, in terms of having the players be able to participate in creating the setting. Um, as more of the session zero, and then acting as agents or having their character be the agents in those games that they get to live through. Um, and I think that might be the draw that would bring someone into exploring a world that they helped create. Um, so I think I can leave the characters as emergent, but I need the the story to bring the player in. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good point to have for. Yeah, you definitely need some sort of drawing in like that, and often uh, like a character class or character choices are um, exactly. instrumental in doing that. Uh, I was reading uh, the Spire recently, which mm. uh, just came out a little bit ago, and is is really good. Or well, it's pretty good. Um, but it has some really interesting classes because all the classes are very much tied to the setting because it's mm -hmm. all set in this big, in like one big city that is the Spire. And so mm -hmm. all the classes are tied to the setting and they're, and a lot of them are really cool. 
Um, and so that was where, where I, I was reading it. And I was like, oh man, this is great. I could play this character and this character. And that was a really um, good kind of pull in and uh, way to, you know, way to push a character into the setting because- yeah, it got you si excited about playing too. Yeah, like, exactly. Like, oh man, I, I would really like to do stuff as this guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that that's I assume the same way that Mark is wanting to go, um, although it does in a slightly different way, in that you have this player created thing where you go, oh yeah, I made this cool kingdom, and now we can explore that, or you know whatever it might be. Yeah, exactly, or or to say that um, I would like to be able to um, explore necromancy as a concept in this game, um, and maybe that wasn't a thing that had ever crossed the GM's mind or that wasn't necessarily as defined in the game when you sat down at the table. But if that's a an element that the player wants to bring and that wants to explore through the context of the game, I want the system to be able to support that, to support the GM and the player in exploring that concept. Um, and I think that there's uh, more to it than just the mechanical aspect. There's more to it than um, like the the just the role playing aspect, I think that there exists the the combination of the two, which lives nicely in the character, um, where you can have mechanical definition and fictional definition that comes from here is a concept that I want to incorporate in the game that I'm playing, um, and hopefully it works. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's... I mean that, and that is. Sorry, keep going. Sorry, I think I think I'm getting a bit of cutting out. Yeah, okay. Oh, I, I thought it might have been just me. But I was kidding. Oh, I've been getting it for a few minutes. Oh shoot. I can't hear from uh, it all. Yeah, I, oh, I thought. And, okay. oh, sorry, yeah. Go ahead. Stay what you're gonna say, Mark. Uh so yeah, I think I think that there's just that interesting mesh between the two the two fields um and there's in terms of character roles um the game doesn't necessarily define those strictly it's not like well you should have someone who's the frontline fighter and you should have someone who's the healer um and i think that i i'm hoping that by creating this structure that i get to see um those roles be something that occurs naturally in the game. Um, and that you can have the, um, I don't know, the this cross of archetypes that we're used to seeing in other games, but that this can sort of bend those roles, bend the rules uh, and make them work. And I'd like to see how, how that can happen in this game. So I, I think that's the goal that I want to work towards is to have these flexible and open roles that emerge uh, as you play. Oh, cool. Well, have the you, one thing, uh, the, the big thing that a class-based or something like class-based system does is it gives the player this huge um, handhold to identify what their character is supposed to do right so if you pick a fighter oh you fight if you play pick a wizard oh you cast you spells. wizard is if you're a thief you you steal stuff 
the mm -hmm. current's direction. So, yeah, it, it gives the player direction about what the character will it, be. Exactly. Slash yeah. is. See, um, you don't really But that's not necessarily the summation of the character's role. For the roles that you're talking about, you don't really need so much to guide the players towards such most well you kind of do for newer players players that have played other games will basically know what they enjoy over time like as they play different games they'll know what they like they will try to create what they like in your game whether your game is capable of it or not that's, uh, that's uh, gonna happen pretty that. much regardless um they might try something new out, but generally speaking, you can assume that a player will sooner or later wander back to familiar territory, because they do know that I do enjoy this. I might enjoy this other thing, but I know I enjoy this. So that's not... That's what I tend to do with new games, is I try to make the same... I try to make the kind of character that I like in a new game that I've played previously in other games, just to see I... if they that new system is capable of it. What if that's not the point of the system? I mean, it's not about capability, it's about direction. No. Sometimes it's about capability. That sounds yeah. like a topic for another time. Yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned yeah, for probably. the next episode. <laughs> but Where we probably of, won't talk about get that. Back on our current topic, regardless of what your your opinion is of that, you will get players that will do that. They will try to uh, return to familiar territory of things they enjoy. Mm -hmm. So a completely new player who doesn't know what roles are available, yes, they're kind of a blank slab that you can do almost anything with, but if you don't give them some direction, they won't know what they can do. So. Something like the class system that is fairly common well, it benefits people in a lot of different ways. And one of the big ones is it basically packages a bunch of similar stuff together and says, if you like punching things in the face, this is what you pick to punch things in the face really good. So, yeah, people will tend to create a punching character if that's what they want to do they'll do it as a boxer as a martial artist as any of a number of different ways you might wind up with anything from a monk to just a cyber you know, troll yeah like it, it doesn't matter somebody is going to find a way to punch people in the face because that's what they want to do so and don't non -class... and in non-class based systems the equivalent of a class is always realizable through the character components that the game does offer. Hmm. So if it's a skills-based system, your class is the, the set of skills you pick, and then you can usually find a way to scribble a label on that bundle of skills. That is more or less a class from another game. All right. Yeah, it's 
it's sure. really easy to say <clears throat> assassin skills and you go oh uh let's see skill at being quiet skill at uh breaking and entering Stabbing. skill at being good with a knife yeah being good with a garrote maybe um Oh, light armor, small crossbow. Like maybe? Everybody, yeah, small crossbow. Everybody kind of has like a bit, a similar idea of what that might look like. Um, maybe poison. Right. So, yeah. what classes do is they immediately fulfill a character concept up front, whereas non-class systems kind of rely on the player to build a class yeah. or. <clears throat> Assemble parts that become a class. Yeah, that's actually exactly how what the uh, renowns and um, presences are in Ashes. They are just they're just bundles of things. There's no reason mechanically. There's no balancing factor where you could you you couldn't build your own using a, a very similar template that's there. Um, you can swap out any of the actions for any of the other actions, any of the skills for any other skills, any of the tactics for any other tactics. The leadership style, same thing. So it's just it's it's just bundling together so that the players, when they're reading through, go, "Oh, I want to build a sneaky, magicy guy." Okay, here's the sneaky, magicy guy stuff. Great. I only had to make two choices as opposed to fourteen. You know, if I'm building out a skill list. All right. <laughs> and that's the last word on that. And that's apparently. That, apparently. All right. Um well I uh I don't have anything else to bring up, anything else to say. Does anyone have any uh okay, parting so thoughts? We've had a long story discussion and we haven't discussed character creation processes at all. <laughs> Which uh, is kind of a big com- subtopic. We so. have already just managed to cover the next thing. I guess we have to talk about that for the next three hours. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, three uh, hours? I'm okay, sorry about introduce character. Maybe we should process, just do uh, like a part three or something. Escape, Fred. Um, yeah, we got sidetracked. I'm sorry. It's probably my fault. <laughs> oh, no, it's everybody's fault. We're talking about character creation mostly. Um, you yeah. want to talk about character creation process? Process. As in, like, how, how do you design how, a process? How do you design a process? Because that is a big thing. To because this is a podcast about game device, game design advice, and design how to design a process is a very important thing to cover. Yeah, to, to I my agree. mind, I, I think um, probably I would say the start is to figure out what you want to define as a character, or at least the most important parts of a character like mm-hmm. their personality or their Mm-mm. mechanical benefits and then make sure that your process covers those. Yeah, I, I think yeah. you have to... <clears throat> oh, go it's ahead. often easier to consider the outcome and build the process to produce that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that is true and you have to make sure it reflects it. But it's like... But I also think we should like not be purely in the in the high level like we should give some advice for how to do that like so uh how I you can... prioritize things like what you would should start with burn everything um how i look at it the couple of times i've designed like a character building 
system. The first one I did was entirely point-based because that made the most sense to me at the time. Um, and it, it was such that you would, you're, you were just picking, this is for a totally different game, but you were basically just buying up dice. Um, so you would start at a D4 and then you would spend points and get them up higher. And it was more or less, wasn't exactly Savage Worlds, but it was pretty close. And um, what the first time I, I sat some friends down and it's like, hey, let's try this out. It was like, I didn't, I didn't have a game at that point. I just had a character creation system. And it was, it was functionally impossible to build a character because they had, there was no, no thing for them to interact with. Um, because I, you know, it, my, my mistake was thinking like, oh, what's the first thing you do in a game? You build a character. Okay, I'm going to design the character creation system first. That was my, yeah, that was other... as far as I thought it through. And then <laughs> I, 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 I built a character creation system. I was like, here's all points and they give you this. And then here's these abilities. And I, there was no combat system. There was no setting. There was no social interaction mechanism. It was just like, okay, so what's a D12 do? And I was like, uh, I don't know yet. <laughs> it's better than the D10. And that was... Yeah, numbers D10. Yes, context how important yeah. is that if you need a roll a 10 plus then a d12 is a lot better than a d10 if you only need a six plus a d12 isn't that much better than mm -hmm. a d10. yeah yeah part of, exactly part of part of realizing what the output of care the outcome of character creation is is realizing what that output should be able to do Yep. Even what kind because of game it is. We previously Yeah. Because we previously established that it, that the the one necessity of an RPG character is that it is able to do stuff. So hmm. more more detail in what stuff is informs you, okay, what what specific tasks should this should a character be able to do? Yeah. So I need systems for those, and then I need um, in the creation process, I need a vector that puts the character into interaction with that type of task. So like, yeah. If your game is not about combat at all, you don't need to have attack rolls in it. Right. I see, I, you know, yeah, to, please to that point, I see a lot of that um, in, 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 in some designs where it's like they just, the, the, the designer just puts in chunks and doesn't bother to examine if those chunks are necessary for the game, they just assume they have to have skills or attributes or <clears throat> hit points or any number of tropes, saves, you know, it's like, and then they go, okay, well, what's yeah, a save doing? They your take game? all those, they take all those structural, um, it's a scaffold. 
that they are trying to build the rest yeah, of the they, game on. Yeah. Yeah, they they take those parts for granted and don't understand what what their purpose is. Right. I would agree that's or, almost better than the opposite because the opposite is not understanding what it is. The opposite is taking those parts out without realizing that that was supporting like that was a load bearing uh, mechanic and you just broke everything else in the process. Mm-hmm. I see yeah. that less often. Yeah, Usually yeah. Stuff that can it be does stuff happen. Usually it's yeah. pretty obvious when they break it. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. One thing Which I is actually... a large part of the reason why D&D doesn't work in non-fantasy settings because if you rip the magic out... That's a good point. Yeah. There's there's not much left to to operate in another kind of in another genre. Mm-hmm. Now to get back to your point of how you need to basically have something for the character to do, I think one of the biggest things for um, building a character creation system is before you even start with that, try to picture what you actually think the gameplay will be like. Like, picture a scenario of, like, Hmm. what the players are doing. Are they scaling, like, a giant cliff? Is this something that they actually have to do on a regular basis? If so, it should probably be something they can do, and then it should be something that you put in the character creation process as something that they can opt to do better or worse at exactly um, um figure out what what, what a character can exactly what a character can do should reflect what is going to happen in the gameplay mm-hmm. and yeah. from there you can then determine how important is x to the gameplay and then you can kind of Weight the detail in those subsystems accordingly. Like D and D is not about social interaction, though. That's why all social interaction is pretty much down to three school roles. Yeah. (laughs) So like, oh, I'm going to talk to anybody. I'm going to roll diplomacy. That's that's the social system in D and D because it's not important to D and D to spend resources on social stuff yeah yeah Uh, one of the the things that i like to uh put into character creation processes kind of moving back a little bit um is like for me one of the important things that i do when making characters and this is not a new thing at all there's a lot of games that mention this is um like regularly asking questions and having the character choices be part of a prompt uh, to ask questions. Mm -hmm. And thus that makes the characterization process be collaborative. Um, And I, you know, that's how I always do it. I think that that's an important part of the process is to be collaborative and talking with each other. Yes, Rob. Yeah. But it also, it, it changes the tone also because it's not, Instead of having to come up with something, you're at, you're answering these directed questions. Like a directed question, um, you know, there's a reason lawyers use directed questions in in courtrooms because they want a certain answer. Like you, as a designer, mm-hmm. you can use questions in character creation 
in order to prompt certain answers. Um, and that's something that, uh, you know, you, you just what, what article of clothing will you not part with? It's something you could, you could, you could put in an RPG and that will really, I mean, you know, then a player goes, Oh, Hmm. Well, it's going to be a leather there, jacket it's... or like what, like what, what, what would make me hang on to an article of clothing to make me so, so that I wouldn't want to part with it. And that could be a piece of your game. If like, you know, um, if it's a game about um, uh, traveling, like it could be like a very important article of clothing, like a jacket or. Um, uh, like or if your game is about, say, like navigating the emerging punk scene in the 70s, you sure. would want to hang on to your black leather jacket. Right, right. Because um, that's part of your identity in that context. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Uh, you know, but but it's something a designer can do, and and I think it's better than than arraying. Not necessarily always better, but f- for developing the fiction of a character, it might be better than giving an array of choices. Um, so it's always better to 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 put the burden of a creative ask on the player. I wouldn't say always. I wouldn't say always. It's I would say often. Almost often, always. Often in this particular case, I would say that it does. Um, but I wouldn't say I wouldn't say always. Yeah. Well you're gonna care. get the creative ask on the player is gonna produce a wider variety than asking them to pick from among five choices. That's correct. That's why it's not always better. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you want to have a, a smaller variety that, like, with a class list or something like that. Sure. You can't have players go. You can't just be like, oh, okay, what? You well, you could, but you don't necessarily want to ask right. a player, oh, what class are you? I want to be um, Sauron with the ring. Yeah, because well, you wouldn't ask what class are you. You would. You would ask what type of what's your preferred like tactic in combat how do you like to solve problems how do you like to solve problems yeah, yeah. i that was something put something a little bit more focused I put, I put in i put in uh in ashes like that's that's what what presence does now is it, it determines how you solve problems because mm-hmm. i i realized that was a much better narrative hook than what i was what i was previously doing yeah so well very, very helpful uh, but i I, I think car you you get my meaning um in that yeah, yeah, yeah. like with a with a class system you or something like that you don't always want to have a creative ask I mean I I love it I the having a good questions and a you know a creative ask like that is great oh but sometimes you don't want to, to. Mm, come on yeah man. I don't I don't th- I don't think a game that is that has a character creation process that is entirely creative asks would produce viable characters because the range is just crazy at that point of what a character could end up being right that's and then you can't then you can't all right classify them meaningfully that's something else to point out in advance um since we are listing this for people that will be doing this um yeah keep in mind that you're Game balance starts in your character creation as well, because 
if you build things that are so broad that you can't predict what a character will be capable of doing at any point during the game, you're basically handing like a huge problem to the GM and just saying, have fun. Hmm. It's like, not my oh, problem. Oh, the entire table like, really is getting yeah. into that problem. Yeah, it, it's gonna suck for them to play it if it's like, well, this character is way stronger than the other characters. It's like, well, this is gonna be really unfortunate. So, to a degree, you kind of, there are certain things that you do want to keep narrower, more restricted. Like, if you give them options, try to make sure that the options are all relatively equal in power so that you know that when a certain situation arises, you can roughly estimate how capable people are going to be at tackling that situation so that is, you can balance is this Is this where we arrive at the tenuous topic of balance? Oh well, I don't I, think we have time for that discussion. I, I think that that's, that's going to be a topic a for problem. another time. That's yeah. that's too much. Does that yeah, it's, balance? It's its yeah. own topic. But... It's its own topic. But don't don't but don't. Here's the thing. Don't be concerned about that until you know what you want your game to do, and then yeah. allow yourself to build a character creation system that serves those goals. And to keep it simple, those goals goals only. You don't have to necessarily create a comprehensive mechanic and character generation system in order to do everything conceivable designed towards a a a something narrow actually is probably better um you know unless you're doing unless you you, you're having the the gall to undertake a generic system uh that you want to do have 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 do everything it's it's a tall order it's it's really hard to do it's really tough yeah and you understand the, um, speaking from experience, you under and you understand the 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 shift in design goals that a generic or universal system requires. Yeah, because it's not the same as 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 designing a uh, something where you can where you can hook the mechanics into the setting readily directly. Um, yeah, and 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 thereby free yourself of the burden of defining stuff that isn't important to your game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and and I, I think, like, ultimately don't worry about game balance until you've yeah. got everything. Yeah. Um, no, I you know, I mean, we'd already it, covered and even then, we already covered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's got a point. Uh, it's a piece of it. It's a piece of it, for sure. In particular, one thing in particular we have to mention, unfortunately. No. Don't... You can start your character design process before you have your dice mechanic. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Who gives a shit about your dice mechanic? That's that's a whole other episode in itself that your dice (laughs) mechanic is not step one. Yeah. Um, dice mechanic is like somewhere's in the middle. Yeah, unless you're me and three at the earliest. Three at the earliest. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, that's I ran into that exact problem because I did design my dice mechanic for the first first iterations of Ashes. I did I did them first, and nope. Yeah, another. 
thing. New, new, you new, don't new. actually even need your dice mechanic in place before no, you, you start uh, balancing the game. Because most of balance isn't specific details, it's mostly just conceptual. So it's like, I want this ability to be heavy damage, but all it does is damage. This ability is medium damage, but it has like a special status effect. This one does very light damage, but it does something really potent that isn't damage. Like, that's game balance there already without even a dice mechanic or any numbers in place. Right, right. Yep. Mm-hmm. No, okay. Okay. Yep. That yep. One. Sure. That is definitely that's how true that was. Very true. Uh actually, uh, Mark, did you have anything to say about character creation process? Yeah, we'll see as your game lacks one. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it is the game. I'm, I'm the least uh, qualified person to talk about <laughs> designing a, a character development system. Um, well, except that your entire game is one. Your it's, entire yeah, game, that's yeah. pretty much it. I was so, gonna say. Uh, I, exactly. So my the whole purpose of the game is like to create your character slowly. So uh, in terms of like the efficiency or like ordering of aspects to your character, um, I, I couldn't talk about that. But what I tried to make sure that I could do in the game is to have distinct elements that uh, players could interact with. Like what are the the moving parts that I want people to have um define their characters and then once i knew which parts uh or what skills or what um aspects defined a character then from there i was able to say well how do you change these numbers how do you advance or or uh gain that definition um throughout the the process of playing um so yeah i think it was just about trying to determine mechanically first what the how the player interacts with the game and then i think the setting builds up upon that afterwards and then you can say well i guess that's that's up to everyone else but then you could say if i want you to be able to uh punch somebody else well then how does that work in this particular setting so if it's mech robots then what does a mech robot punching another mech robot look like, and how does that fictionally alter what the mechanical <coughs> aspect? Um, so that's the that's my I guess two cents on it. Hmm. So Mark, I want to say thank you because you just made me think of something great to emphasize on this. So it's like how finished your character is at character creation, like after you finish character creation, is based on what part of this character's story is important. So let's say if you're worried about how a character changes over time, then you want a pretty firm, solid starting point to know what was, what already exists, because you can't really change if you don't have anything to change from so you need to have like a pretty solid starting point so my game has like really complex uh and lengthy character creation point because the whole focus is upon you need to know where you were so that you know how you change over time in a game that's far more focused on establishing the character in play 
then the character creation process can be very short and vague, and you can spend most of your time establishing the character in the actual game itself rather than during character creation. Well said. Yes, I, that was well said enough that I think we're going to end on that. <laughs> That's fair enough. I'm sorry. Hi, this is Bonus Banner. Fuck. It's not the Hulk, dude!